beautiful mountain scene. Perhaps it's Mount Everest off in the distance. We've got a perfectly clear day. And the mountain peak looks quite close. But of course, it's a long, long way away. And often we underestimate the size of distant mountains. We think they're closer than they are, so we think they're smaller than they actually are. If we wanted to climb that peak, we would have to go across many ridges and valleys, up and down and up and down. And it might take us a long time. In the case of Everest, the photo I'm thinking of, it might take us weeks. There are probably more ridges in between that we really can't see. And when Isaiah peered into the future with the help of God's Spirit, he saw the future a bit like this. He saw lots of future events, and some were quite close to him in time, and some of them were much further away. From Isaiah's perspective, some of the distant events looked really close to each other, much as when we look at a mountain range, the far-off mountains, we can't tell how far they are from each other. We might think we're looking at one range when actually we're looking at several. So prophecy is rather like that. Sometimes the time scale of events is very unclear. We can't tell how close they are to each other. And from Isaiah's time, he just didn't know. But we have had 2,700 odd years of history since Isaiah's time. So we can look back and see that some of the things he predicted have been fulfilled, they've already come true, but others haven't. So we're on our way across those troughs and peaks to the summit, and the summit is still ahead. So if we look at the passage from Isaiah chapter 11, it's a small piece of Isaiah's writings, so we must never look at it as a standalone passage. It's part of something bigger. It's not as though it was just one of a collection of poems. It's more like a single page from an epic story. Isaiah has a lot more to say than he says in this one passage. Isaiah lived in troubled times. His small country, Judah, was threatened by events beyond its borders. The immediate threat was the king of Assyria from the north. He was rampaging, coming south. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by him, and now he was threatening other kingdoms around. And he was picking off the major cities of Judah itself, leaving Jerusalem rather like a shed in a vegetable patch. And our chapter comes in the middle of a message about these events. Isaiah says God is using Assyria to bring his punishment to the nations and to punish Judah for rebellion and idolatry. So in chapter 10, we read of Assyria being boastful about her conquests, but God saying, you're not the conqueror, you're just a tool. You're like an axe that I'm using to chop down the trees. God is in control and Assyria's power was limited. She would be punished in turn for her own pride and arrogance. God himself would cut her down as he passed through like a woodcutter. He would cut down the trees till only stumps were left. And the last two verses of chapter 10 sum up what's going on. It says this, See the Lord, 
the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. But chapter 11 opens. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse? Well, Jesse is David's father. So all the line of kings came from Jesse. And this line of kings was not yet dead. Isaiah could see that that line of kings descended from David was going to come to an end because after Assyria had gone away, the Babylonians were coming. And God would cut down that tree of Jesse down to a stump. But it would shoot again. Now we see that the shoot is Jesus, but there's a time gap between chapter 10 and chapter 11. It was a gap of a few centuries. I don't suppose Isaiah realised that. If we look at verse 2 to the first part of 3, we get a description of this shoot. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It's actually a sevenfold description, rather like a seven-branched candlestick. You've got the central pillar of the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And then either side we've got paired branches, wisdom, understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is not a ruler who is about power and vast armies. He's about qualities that make him fit to rule. And the sevenfold description tells us that he has the status and perfection of God himself. And that phrase, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in his own relationship with the Lord and he'll delight in others who fear him. This will be a ruler who promotes righteousness of all that is good and true. And Isaiah tells us he won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This is a king who can't be misled by appearances or persuaded by crafty advisers. He has that perfect wisdom which enables him to make just and fair decisions based on truth. But the next verse jars. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. When we look at Jesus' life on earth, we don't see this element of judgment. We don't see it now as the kingdom is extending. That judgment still seems to be in the future, connected to the end when Jesus will return. So we're in another valley another time gap between verses 3 and 4. But Jesus is the King who is the Righteous One and clothed with truth and faithfulness. He's that already and will be forever. The next bit seems to jump even beyond the time of judgment. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And we have this phrase about the lion eating straw like the ox. This seems to be a glimpse of the peak 
It's the ultimate goal, the end point of God's purposes. It speaks of an era very different from our own. The natural world is reordered with vegetarian lions as tame as pussycats. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that all creation is longing for this time and groaning for it. It was not meant to be as it is now. And lastly, we have the verses about the root of Jesse standing as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, his resting place will be glorious. And the next verse, which we didn't read, goes on, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of people. The phrase, in that day, tells us that it's something for the future, but it doesn't tell us which bit of the future it would be nice if it did. But we do see Jesus now as a banner for the nations, a rallying point, a signal. And people all across the world are being gathered to him. We sometimes feel we're going backwards in this country, but it's not the case in other parts of the world. In Latin America and Africa, the churches are vibrant and growing. Isaiah's prophecy in this passage then speaks of at least three time periods. The nearest thing is the downfall of the king of Assyria and it followed in 681 BC while Isaiah was still in midlife. The next thing was the coming of the Messiah shooting from the stump of David's dynasty after it had lain dormant for 600 years. This ruler, Jesus, would be marked by the Spirit of God. The Messiah is also associated with judgment, and that's a third range of mountains. Beyond that, we glimpse the renewed earth, the final goal of God's purposes. Despite all these ranges, Isaiah is still not seeing the whole picture, not in chapter 11 anyway, there are many important bits missing, aren't there? Nothing about the suffering of Christ, his death and resurrection. Nothing about Pentecost. Nothing about all the ages since Jesus went back to heaven. So if we turn to Matthew and we read about John the Baptist, we, came, we find John announcing that the kingdom of God was about to begin. The king himself was coming. John, of course, had no clear timetable for what was going to happen any more than Isaiah did. And we get that same sense of events appearing to be close together, which have turned out to actually be widely separated. John speaks of the need for immediate repentance and forgiveness of sins. Well, that's necessary to prepare the way for the Messiah who was indeed about to come. John announces his coming as a time of judgment. He says the axe is already at the root of the trees, harking back to Isaiah, I think. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This judgment time has not yet come. Then we have verse 11, tucked in between the verses about judgment, where he says, I baptise you, that's John speaking, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you 
with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now we have little difficulty identifying this person as Jesus, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah of whom Isaiah spoke. He is more powerful than John and outranks him as a king outranks his most menial servant. And he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This Jesus, we remember, is the one who is anointed with the Spirit of God and he baptises with the Holy Spirit. We see this fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. At last, the Holy Spirit fills Jesus' followers. At last, all kinds of people can enjoy having him live inside them. At last, we know truly God is with us. This spirit of wisdom and understanding is ours. So where does this leave us? What can we take home for our lives? Well, I've got three points, because all sermons have three points. Jesus is still the banner or the signal to the nations. And we need to lift him up so that people can see and be drawn to him. Let's make him known through our words and deeds, through our generosity and our money, time, our talents, so that everybody can hear about his offer of forgiveness, because now is the time and it won't last forever. The king is good, that's my second point, and the kingdom of justice, the kingdom is of justice, so we should live like that too. The king is not influenced by fake news, opinions, trendsetters or lobby groups, and neither should we be. We must be scrupulously honest and fair in our dealings. We must extend his kindness and mercy to people around us. We must not rush to judge people. We must be sure to get our facts straight. And we must be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. And the third point, he is our eternal home. Verse 10 says, the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. But the literal translation turns out to be, his resting place will be glory. That's not quite the same thing. When Jesus completed his work, all that salvation stuff and judgment, then he will rest in glory. And it's not so much a glorious place as glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Glory is the sum of who he is, his character and his acts and all he has done. Those who've rallied to his banner will share that glory with him. And that is our home. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.